For our text this morning, we'll just read two verses, actually, in Colossians chapter 3. Look with me, if you will, in verse 17 and verse 18. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you to gather here again this day. Thank you for your many blessings and the grace that is ours that is provided for us in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for uh, providentially working in the lives of those of your uh, your body, of your family. We thank you for that. Thank you for the answered prayers, Lord, for the health of, and, and the regaining of health of so many who've been through sicknesses and, Father, uh, recovering from procedures and surgeries and such. We are so grateful, Lord, for your mercy and grace. We do pray for those who are still away from us, those who are sick. We ask for you to uh, not bring them and, Lord, restore them to health as well. And, Father, we pray this morning as we have gathered in this place, may our hearts and our attentions, our focus be placed upon Christ who so rightly deserves our adoration. And may we humbly submit ourselves, not just in word, but in deed and in actions, Lord. May we submit ourselves to you humbly, recognizing that you alone are worthy of our worship. You alone are worthy of our submission. And so, Father, may we recognize that each and every day that we live, and may you be glorified, and may the church be edified through the teaching of your word. May you grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his precious name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Uh, We have been in Colossians now for, as you are aware, months uh, working through uh, this study through the book of Colossians. And I I want to, I actually want us to pause before we even get into the text at all this morning and um, help bring together some things that I think are of great importance that if we're not careful, we may neglect to see the significance of this portion of the text in relation to everything we've already studied up to this point, not only in chapter 3, but in the entirety of the book. If you recall with me, uh, we know that the church at Colossae, that Paul is dealing with the issue of Gnosticism. We've dealt with that many times, mentioned that, and given brief description of that to a degree at least of what that is. And one of the uh, teachings, if you will, of Gnosticism of course, that is derived again from the uh, word uh, nosco or to know. And so uh, Gnosticism was this idea, part of it at least, was this idea, of course, that you could enter into a relationship, if you will, of God or be introduced to God uh, through some mystical knowledge, through some mystical means by which you gain this relationship with God or you got to know him. And so in that alone, we recognize that Paul's letter, of course, in refuting Gnosticism and grounding the believers at Colossae in the truth of the Scriptures and the truth of the preeminence of Christ, he emphasizes that throughout this epistle. Preeminent, or that Jesus Christ is Lord, is really what it amounts to. And so he's saying as well, though, Jesus, as we know in Colossae, tells us that he is the very image of the invisible God in the flesh, as we know, humbled himself, Came, became a servant in the form of a servant, humbled himself, took on the flesh of humanity, sinless, but yet took on the flesh of humanity, and therefore God, through Christ, has revealed himself to mankind. Colossians 1, John 1, uh, 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 Ephesians 1, you find First John, all of these 
passages showing the preeminence of Christ and the truth that Christ, Hebrews chapter 1, as we mentioned, Christ was manifested in the flesh and that through this manifestation now we can know God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Gnosticism would totally eliminate the necessity for Christ to have been manifested in the flesh, for the Son of God to come in the flesh, because you can know God through some mystical means, uh, according to their teaching, whereas we know, and Scripture clearly teaches, that Christ had to be manifested in the flesh because the flesh is the problem, and that there is no connection between God the Father and mankind. God is a spirit, and there's no connection between God and man apart from him making a way through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ is preeminent. Now, this is so important to remember in relation to our text this morning is because I know we read verse 17, which we really dealt with this last week to a degree, but I want to include that in the text this morning. We're really looking at verse 18 more importantly this morning, but we see that the scripture says this is beginning a new portion of the text, a division of the chapter, if you will, in which Paul says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. And so from this point forward in the remaining verse, going to address the relationships, the physical human relationships that exist between mankind. And the reason it's important to remember the preeminence of Christ in all of this is that the only way that these relationships can be what God has purposed for them to be is through his provision that is in Jesus Christ as Christ is being acknowledged to be preeminent as God has declared him to be. So there is a direct connection between these verses this morning and everything Paul has already laid out, though we may easily be prone to disconnect them by going, oh, this is about wives and then about husbands and then about children. And so, No, it, it is about that, but it's all in relation to the foundation that's already been built by Paul in the preceding chapters and even this third chapter of this epistle. So as believers in Christ, as chapter 3 verse 1 tells us, who are risen with Christ, risen with him, Paul exhorted the Colossian believers to put off the old man and his deeds and to put on the new man. And within this exhortation, as we've clearly seen over the past many months, we, we understand Paul stated in verse 14, and above all these things, he's already talked about putting the old man with his deeds, he gives a list of that. Then he says, put on the new man. And we saw how it is, it, is, it is ridiculous to think that it is acceptable or that it would be common practice at all for a believer to ever revert back to what he's been delivered from in salvation, in genuine biblical salvation. It is as ridiculous or more so ridiculous that, to think that is acceptable as it would be, as I mentioned, for someone who's been out working all day long, sweating, filthy, to go and bathe themselves and then to put back on the filthy garments they took off to wash themselves from that filth when there are other garments, either new garments or clean garments that are available to clothe themselves, it would be ridiculous for them to put on the old garments again. Now, again, I, I make this, this mention of this because it is important if one has only the old garments to put back on, then that's what they're going to do. So when someone has not truly been born again and all they're attempting to do is religiously clean themselves up, they will naturally, and it's totally acceptable to think that they're going to go back and revert back to their old lifestyle because that's all they know they have. 
But for believers in Christ, we are to put on this new man because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been imputed unto us. So now we are to put on that new man, as Paul says in Colossians 3, having put off the old man because in the work of Christ. And so he says in verse 14, and above all these things in putting on the new man, Put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Now, charity is the word, of course, agape, the Greek word agape, for which we often, through Scripture, you find is referencing God's love or the love of God himself. And this charity, as Paul mentioned in verse 14, is that which brings believers together, and it is this love that serves us, godly love, that serves as the evidence of maturity and continued growth within the lives of all of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. As Jesus testified when he explained to his disciples in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, he said. Remember, we looked at this a little last week. The old commandment was what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, there's a new commandment, however, I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Ye also love one another. By this, by this love, Not your love, that you love as I have loved, which is his love demonstrated through us, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. So Paul continued by explaining that it is this love that is the bond, that that gives us this unity. We know that, Ephesians 4, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We actually read that this morning already. And that is that we are to be attentive to maintain the unity, not produce unity, but to maintain the unity by the very presence of the Spirit of God who dwells within us. We are, we are to be intentional and purposeful in maintaining that unity. But he says that we, furthermore, in verses 15 and 16 of our text of Colossians 3, Paul continues explaining that believers are to let or allow the peace of God to control their lives while they also let or allow the word or the message, this is what it means, of Christ to bind hearts. So in verses 15 and 16 we read, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. These verses set the stage again for the remaining of Paul's exhortation within this chapter. In fact, Paul sandwiches the remaining verses of this exhortation between verses 17 and and 23, in which Paul exhorts the Colossian believers. Look at verse 17 again, and then we'll compare it to verse 23. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and, by the, and the Father by him. Then verse 23. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Now let's pay attention to this for a moment. 17, 8, or 18, 19, 20, and 21, and 22. The, those verses are sandwiched between verse 17 and verse 23. And I told you, do not discount all that Paul has already taught of being risen with Christ and acknowledging the preeminence of Jesus Christ because everything that is to be done, all the relationships that are existent between mankind are to be a reflection of the relationship that exists between God and man. And so this is to be demonstrated through our lives, and that's the importance of what Paul is saying here. All things are not only to be said and done in the power and authority of the person of our Lord Jesus, but also in a spirit of thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord. He mentions that in these verses. 
The name of Jesus is not simply, again, the title by which he is called, but the, the word is used here, name, is a direct connection to the person of the one who holds such title. And so to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do all things in the spirit, in the person and power of the one to whom is referenced. And these verses are a reminder of the spirit in which all our relationships are to be centered as those who have been risen with Christ. It was just over two years ago during our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Ephesus that we were studying the parallel passage to our text this morning. Ephesians and Colossians are parallel in the teaching. And I believe, uh, as we see in our text this morning, that that we will recognize that both in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul addresses multiple relationships which, again, exist among humanity within these two epistles. And I believe it would be beneficial for us to revisit the very truths from our Ephesians study Paul revisits them in this epistle to the church at Colossae. I explained during our study of Ephesians chapter 5, if you recall, this has been a few years back, that we live in a time referred to by many, of course, as a postmodern society or time. And in what is referred to as postmodernism, or what I would even refer to at this point in time as a post-Christian culture, the spirit of skepticism has prevailed, which has prompted people to not only question, but all the very tenets which stabilizes all societies. Let me say it to you like this. While we understand there's a rejection, look at this in a moment, while we understand there's a rejection of biblical truth altogether, widely, including our own country, including what we call our own churches in many cases, while we recognize that to be true, it is the very truth of Scripture concerning the foundation of culture and society that is rejected by mankind, including the order God has provided, which is the very stabilization of a society and a culture. For a culture or society to exist, there has to be order. Nothing exists or continues to exist in chaos. And so we find chaos produces self-destruction or results in self-destruction. And today we live in a time not only of postmodernism, if you will, but I would even say post-Christian culture, in which, in our own country that is to stay, in which the very tenets that stabilize, apart from religious teaching, and I say that loosely, religious teaching, I'm talking about, look at the destabilization of our society due to the fact that today it is not known the difference between a man and a woman which is absolute ridiculousness and insanity. Look, if you've been married for any length of time, you know there is a huge difference between a man and a woman. Right? We are different. And yet in a society where you choose to be what you want to be, so to speak, how can you continue? How is that stable? There's no stability at all in such idiosity and ridiculousness. And so the very core truths of culture and society itself, which God defines in his word. So these are biblical teachings apart from religious uh, teachings in terms of religion itself, if if I could say that, just the very core truths of culture and society and human existence is taught to us in the word of God, which is absolutely rejected. 
in the day in which we live. And so these truths that stabilize society and are the stability of culture have been rejected and there's skepticism not only in regard to these tenets and even in postmodernism itself, which involves societal, political, and global issues, biblical truths are also very much so a focal point of such skepticism. And the skepticism is clearly evident concerning the covenant relationship of marriage. And we see the results of the destabilization of society within the rejection of God's definition of marriage. Remember something. Marriage is not something the state institutes. Marriage is not something that man came up with. God ordained God ordained marriage. And if God is the author and the source of the institution of the covenant relationship of marriage, then it is God who defines that which marriage is. Not man and not the state. And that's very important to recognize. And we see the results of this section of God's definition of the marital covenant relationship. And again, God is the one who instituted marriage, and therefore God alone has the right to define marriage. God and God alone. However, society's attempt to redefine marriage is not where such destabilization begins. And this is interesting to note, and I believe it's, it's something we must give heed to. You know, we have a tendency, we've always had this tendency, I believe, and, and we have it in our own personal lives, and we have it even a, as a society, I think, as a culture, and even within the church so often, that we have a tendency to look at symptoms or the results of a problem and think that the symptoms are the problem rather than realizing that there are underlying foundational roots that are really the issue and problem, not the symptoms. For instance, how many times, let me give you an example you can relate to, how many times have churches attempted to reform people rather than evangelize people? How many times have people said, oh, well, this behavior is not good, you shouldn't do that, that's not good for you, whenever the problem is not the behavior, the problem is that there is a heart of unbelief, an unregenerate heart that's never come to faith in Christ, which is therefore resulting in such behavior or action. But yet, let's reform the person, fix the problem. No. Again, religion is always saying, work from the outside in. Let's fix the outside. It'll help you become a better person. And not only religion teaches that, but also all this self-help nonsense and garbage does the same. But redemption is from the inside out. It is redemption, God regenerating us, making us a new man, which we're dealing with in Colossians chapter 3, putting on that new man. We are this new man, this new creature in Christ, which is then demonstrated. Uh, demonstrated within and, and out of the life of the one who's been born again. To simplify, a new life is the result of a new birth. But you cannot gain a new life apart from a new birth. You can reform, you can try to stop this, stop that, but you will never live in the righteousness of Christ apart from his righteousness having been imputed unto you in the new birth. And so it's important to, to recognize that. So as in his epistle to the Ephesians, Paul also in Colossians addresses wives and then husbands concerning how their relationship with Christ will be demonstrated within all other relationships, beginning the covenant relationship of marriage. And although men have attempted to, again, redefine marriage, this meaningless attempt made by men is manifested in men's rejection of God, the God-declared order and purpose of life 
and as well God's purpose for and in the covenant relationship of marriage. So the truth of verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, that is, remains foundational to all Paul is teaching in this passage. Do not think that all of a sudden you separate verse 18 because, oh, wives, uh, submit yourselves and your husbands as is fit in the Lord. All of a sudden now we're moving on to, oh, the marital life and, and, and the home. No, this is, it is about the home, yes, but it's all about Christ being acknowledged as preeminent and as a woman, as a wife, is to live in submission and acknowledgement of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So this is what it looks like. That's what Paul is saying. So Paul, we could say, or could view this verse accordingly. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 1 for just a moment. If ye then be risen with Christ. Then verse 18. If ye then be risen with Christ, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. As I previously mentioned, this passage is a parallel passage to Ephesians 5 in a very real sense. And while it is believed that Paul wrote both of these epistles around 62 AD, both Ephesians and Colossians, in other words, they are sisters, and also they were written in the same year, believed to be probably around the same time, it would appear that Paul summarizes in Colossians the same truths which he expounded within his epistle to the Ephesians. Here you have one verse, verse 18, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now, enough said, right? Then you move on to husbands, enough said. But when you go back to Ephesians, it appears as though Paul is now just referencing what he's already taught and already written in the book or his epistle or letter to the churches or the church at Ephesus. And so he says in verse 18 of our text, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24 says this, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Paul's teaching within these two books is not that women are to be perceived as less important than men. Neither is this teaching focused on men treating their wives in a demeaning or a domineering manner. Rather, the focus of this passage is that just as our individual lives are to be lived within God's order and in submission to his purpose, the lives of husbands and wives joined together within this covenant relationship of marriage are to be lived within God's order according to his purpose and for his glory. As I stated to you in our study of Ephesians, it is interesting that Paul begins his teaching to both the church at Ephesus and Colossians concerning Christ-like living in marriage by first addressing the wives. Now, it's not by chance that Paul does this. And there are several reasons, I believe, to which we should give consideration as to why Paul first addressed the wives. And I've given these to you to some degree. We've dealt with this in our study of Ephesians. Like I said, I believe that Paul is referencing, again, what he's already taught in Ephesians here in Colossians. And I believe as believers in Christ, as we read through this, that we should go back and consider what Paul said in Ephesians because he expounds upon this truth as he briefly mentions it in our text here in Colossians. And so, as I was working through this passage myself, I said, I, I thought 
So I said, why would we want to just totally reinvent the wheel, so to speak? Let's draw from what Paul has said in Ephesians and help us understand in more depth what he is referencing here in Colossians. And so number one, we see, as I said, there are several reasons to which we need to give consideration as to why Paul addressed the wives first. I find this interesting. Among uh, many today, uh, because culture, again, pushes back against this. It does. Our society is totally pushing against this. And it does not, to, to, to read this verse, they would say this is absolutely archaic and that, you know, that was a different time and, and that was whenever women were under this great oppression and, and they shouldn't be, you know, listening to their husbands. Listen, it, it, God so ordained it that he created man and then out of man he created woman. But then out of woman, he procreated man. The point is that you can't have one without the other. They are both necessary. And God saw fit to this. And we have different roles, and we have different positions, and we have different strengths and different weaknesses, obviously, that we all experience. But many would view this passage as for many years in our religious culture, it was what propagated, you know, of men having to put their fingers on their, on their wives, you know, holding them down type mentality, whenever that's not at all what this is talking about. By the way, the Scripture doesn't teach that men are to domineer over their wives in that capacity. It is teaching that women who are risen with Christ are to willingly submit to God's order and God's purpose. Not for men to take control over that, forcing something, but that women are to submit themselves humbly to the order that God has ordained. And this is of tremendous importance, though widely rejected and fought and opposed in our culture and society today. So while the husband, first, first reason I want to give you is that the responsibility of a Christ-like marriage is as much the responsibility of the wife as it is the husband. Now, the husband is to lead his home. The husband is to rule in leadership, that is, not domineering, but to rule as example and teaching and instruction and correction. He is the one God is going to hold accountable for his home. By the way, one of the, one of the tragedies in not only our culture, our society, as a, in, in the Western society and culture, but one of the tragedies in the church today is that men refuse to shepherd their homes. Men refuse to shepherd their wives. Men refuse to shepherd their children. Men look at it as though it's the church's responsibility to do this, the pastor's responsibility to do this. Listen to me. You need to hear me closely. I know we're looking at wives, but you have to understand this. It is your responsibility to lead and guide and teach and instruct. And I simply say it is a disgrace and dishonor for a man to not spiritually lead and teach and direct his home. Men are responsible to do this. But it's also the responsibility of the woman, the wife, to, in her part, to cultivate this Christ-like marriage or covenant relationship. So while the husband is held accountable before God and his wife, as it is his God-given responsibility to lead his home, it is no less the responsibility of the wife to contribute to a Christ-like marriage. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter deals with this, and we'll stay in chapter 3 here for a moment, verses 1 and 2. Likewise, Peter wrote, Ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they hold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Let me give you the emphasis of what Peter is saying here. And men, the truth of the matter is, if, if you have at all any semblance of a healthy relationship with your wife, 
then the truth is your wife has influence in your life. Your wife does influence you. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to give heed to everything that your wife may say or do, but the point is that our, our wives, if there's one woman who has my ear, it is my wife. And she knows me. She knows my highs and my lows. She knows the ins and the outs. And the fact of the matter is, she can speak something to me and have my ear when someone else may not, I may not pay attention at all to that. Now, it's not for her to lead, and that's not what I'm saying. But Peter is saying here that the wife, especially the wife who is submitted to the preeminence of Christ, living in subjection to the Lord and to his word, that she can be used by the Lord in even helping and influencing her husband, who is supposed to be the one leading his home and shepherding his home. Number two, wait, let me, let me continue uh, here. He says, again, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Two, another reason why Paul may have addressed the wives before the husbands, when the husbands are the shepherds and leaders of the home, it is an honor to be addressed first as the position of the wife is honorable. I believe Paul intentionally got under, of course, the working of God's spirit in writing his word, that Paul here acknowledges that the woman as a wife holds a, an honorable position. This is not to be looked upon in some demeaning way by any stretch of the imagination. For Paul to address the wife first should not be perceived dishonorably, but rather should be viewed as Paul honoring this position of the wife within this covenant relationship of marriage. First Peter 3, 3 and 4, Paul, uh, Peter goes on to write, Who's adorning? Let it not be that of outward adorning, of plaiting the hair, and of wearing of gold, and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Do you see what Paul or Peter is saying here? He's saying that the beauty of the wife, because he's still speaking of a wife in relationship to her husband, he's saying the beauty of the wife is not how she adorns herself outwardly, but the hidden man, the inward man, the secret man, meaning it's her person and her being in submission to the Lord that is the beauty of the wife. And therefore, if she is risen with Christ, let her live accordingly that she then is contributing her part as a follower of Christ in living out the new life in the home. And then third, and this is an honorable thing, third, the wife is to reflect how the church is to submit to Christ. Although Paul is providing practical instruction on how a wife and husband are to live together and interact with one another, there's a much bigger picture which Paul is conveying. And the church is espoused to Christ and is responsible to live in absolute devotion and commitment to Christ, awaiting the day she will become his bride. 1 Peter 3, the following verses 5 and 6. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection under their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye will do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. I was not going to mention this, but I'm going to. Verse 6 is a wonderful verse, isn't it? Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I often have reminded my wife of this very verse. Well, Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, and the Scripture commends her for that. And she says, well, I'm not Sarah, and you're not Abraham. <laughs> and so there you have that. <laughs> 
But the fact of the matter is, the Scripture here is saying that there's a reflection as the old women of old, as they understood, they trusted God, but they subjected themselves with their own husbands, even given the example of Sarah and Abraham, and how that it's already stated in the previous verses how that the adorning of the inward man, how that is of great price to God. Sarah's demonstration of her respect for her husband is demonstrative of how the church is to reverence and obey the Lord, who is Jesus, who is our bridegroom. This is never to be viewed again in a demeaning manner, but rather should be considered as a position of honor. Remember something, Christ died for his church. And for the church to submit herself to Christ who is the head is not that it's a demeaning thing or as though the thumb of God is now placed upon us. No, it is that his love is placed upon us. And we understand that and submit to him in thankfulness and adoration to him. And it is the very spirit that wives are to submit to their own husbands as indicated in our text. Verse 18 again, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Now the verb submit, it means to subject. And we've already seen that in the previous verses as well. And the statement is fit, this verb phrase, if you will, means is proper. And Paul is stating that wives are to subject themselves to their husbands in the proper manner in submission to the Lord. Again, this is not a command for the husband to control his wife, but it's a command for the wife to subject herself to the God-given leadership of her husband. Now, as shepherds, we are to instruct our wives. We are to correct our wives, as husbands, that is. We are to lead our wives, and we have a responsibility to do so. And we should take that responsibility to heart and seriously with great soberness and gravity. But would to God that we as husbands were as committed to loving our wives as Christ loved the church as so many have been in attempting to control their wives, which this verse does not even call men to do. This verse is not a call for a man to control his wife. This verse is a call and a command for a woman to submit herself unto the authority, God-given authority of the home and order that God has provided. It's interesting how we can conveniently, so many, conveniently just twist the scriptures to fit their narrative, isn't it? Or to fit what they desire for it to say rather than acknowledging what it actually is teaching and saying. Paul explained in Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. So again, the comparison is being made. And I remind you that further in that chapter, I believe verse 30 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, this is a great mystery and he's talking about everything he just dealt with with the husband and wife, wife and husband. This is a great mystery, but then he makes a statement, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So Paul's whole emphasis in Ephesians 5 was not about the wife and husband. It was about the church and Christ and that relationship. And so he's saying all of this is to be a reflection of this relationship of Christ and his church. Remember, God is a God of order as evidenced in his entire creation. And Paul explains that the command for the wife to submit to her husband as unto the Lord is a matter of God's eternal order regarding relationships. God has declared this order clearly in his word. And he did so in the letter of uh, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, and I don't have time to deal with all of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, but you'll see the order here clearly given. In chapter 11, verse 3, Paul wrote, but I would have you know, that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, 
and the head of Christ is God. So you have the head of man, the head of the woman, and the head of Christ. And the, the word Christ, remember, the title Christ, this is not a name, this is a title, and it means anointed one or Messiah. And so when it says Christ, it's talking about Jesus in the flesh. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe, obviously, according to the teaching of Scriptures, that they are three eternal, distinct persons that are one eternal divine being. And again, we cannot explain that really any more so than that. We cannot define that any more so than that. But yet we know that there are three distinct being, or persons that are one eternal divine being. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have always been. But Jesus in the flesh had not always been. He was manifested in the flesh. So when it says the head of Christ is God, it's talking about the head of the Messiah he who is over the Messiah, over the anointed one, is the one who anointed him to come in the flesh. So God the Father then is ruler over God the Son in the flesh is what's, the, is what's being stated. Remember, when Jesus came, what did he say? He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. So Jesus himself says, I submit to the Father and to his will. He's not talking as the eternal Son of God that was always with God prior to the manifestation. He's talking about in the flesh, in the manifestation of the flesh, he submitted himself to the purpose and will of the Father who sent him. So the first two truths in verse 3 of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians are the truths, which men and, are the truths which, with which men and women struggle, while the third truth serves as an example of the total submission of our Lord Jesus Christ to the Father as he lived in the flesh. So let's look at the head of every man as Christ. Let's just break this down quickly. The headship of Christ is demonstrated throughout Scripture and clearly declared by Paul in his epistle of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And God the Father hath put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the body of Jesus, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Ephesians 4, 15. But speaking the truth and love, the church may grow up into him, Jesus, in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Ephesians 5, 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Paul explains that Jesus is irrefutably the head. He is the one who is supreme, or might we say the one who is preeminent, as Paul is uh, expounding in his letter to the church of Colossae. He is in preeminent status in view of authority to order or command all of mankind. But then we come to number two, or B, the head of every woman is the man. Ephesians 5, 22-24, once again. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, Paul's statement within this passage, again, is not a decree of the superiority of men, but rather a declaration of God's order and the responsibility he has handed down to both men and women. In Christ, Paul also explains that there is no gender superiority. In Galatians 3, 26-28, he says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, listen closely. Not everyone is a child of God. That's not what he's saying. But if you are of faith in Christ, then you are the children of God. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Oh, the new man. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond nor free, neither is there male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that there is no distinction physically in men and women, neither is saying that there's no distinction in the roles or the responsibilities that God has given men and women within his body. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that there's no superiority in one being a man or a woman in Christ. There's no superiority in one being a free or bond in Christ. There's no superiority to one being a Jew or a Gentile if they are in Christ. There is no superiority. There's that equal ground in Christ and Calvary. So in a day which, in which there's argument not only over equality of gender, but now even gender identity as it's commonly referred, such truth is obviously disregarded and rejected, meaning the order that God has given, that truth. However, the reason this is true is due to the failure of men and women to submit to the first truth Paul stated in 1 Corinthians eleven three. Are you ready? Here it is, going back. The head of every man is Christ. When that foundational truth is disregarded or rejected, chaos ensues. If you don't believe that, look in the Garden of Eden. As soon as man rejected the declared word, chaos ensued and has been the result ever since. When we fail to acknowledge and submit to the preeminence and lordship of Jesus Christ, then what is the inevitable result? If we do not acknowledge the exalted Christ, you exalt yourself. If you are acknowledging the preeminence of Jesus Christ, you make yourself preeminent. When you do not submit humbly to the Lord, you take control and rule and reign over yourselves. Men have exalted themselves as Lord over their lives, and therefore women do the same in relation to both Christ and their husbands. This is mankind in general, which woman is part of that humanity. Then third, C, the head of Christ is God. Paul declared this truth for an example of what it looks like when we submit to Christ as Lord, as Christ submitted to the Father. Again, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I won't take time to read that. But again, the text referred to as the hymn to Christ or the Carmen Christi, in which Christ humbled himself. In the flesh he humbled himself, and God exalted him in a glorified flesh. Jesus has always been Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he humbled himself physically that he might be exalted physically in a glorified flesh, forever ruling and reigning over mankind. Ephesians 5.24, and Paul wrote, Therefore as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The wives are to submit to their husbands as the church is to be submissive to Christ, who is the head of his church. Let me ask you something. Do we not have a master who is loving and caring and gracious and merciful and kind and long-suffering and forbearing? Do we not? Is the head of the church, which is Jesus, is he not long-suffering with us? Is he not gracious with us? Is he not kind to us? Is he not merciful to us? Does he, does he rule us with a rod of iron? Does he beat us into subjection? Does he? No, but he works graciously and mercifully conforming us. God the Father conforms us to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will present us a church which is spotless and blameless, beautiful unto him, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has so graciously committed himself and his purpose to do. 
Well, if that's how we are led and the church is to submit herself unto Christ and wives are to submit themselves unto their head, which is their husbands, as the church is to submit herself unto her head, which is Christ, then husbands, we are to deal with our wives as Christ deals with his church. And wives are to submit themselves unto such headship as the church is to submit herself under the headship of Christ. The relationship, in other words, of the wife to her husband is to be a beautiful representation of the relationship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And this is an honorable position by God, ordained by God. A wife who is living the resurrected life will submit herself to her husband demonstrating the beauty of God's order in the home while representing the beauty of God's order in the church. Again, while many would take Ephesians 5, many would take Colossians 3 and attempt to subjectify these verses and say, okay, this morning let's study on the home and what Scripture says about the home. That's not the point. It's not about you and your home. It's about Christ and His church. And it's about you living the risen life. That's the point. And wives, if ye then be risen with Christ, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. As it is proper in the Lord. This is an honorable thing. It's an honorable position. So, Lord willing, next week, We'll look at husbands. But guess what? I'll remind you of this. It's not about you. And it's not about your relationships, actually. It's about you acknowledging the preeminence of Christ. Listen, it's this simple. Every horizontal relationship that we can experience, which Paul deals with all of them in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, he deals with husbands, husbands, wives, Fathers, children, children, parents, masters, servants, servants, masters. He deals with every relationship that mankind knows in both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. And every one of those horizontal relationships are to be a result and reflection of the vertical relationship that exists between Christ and his church or the believer in Jesus Christ. In other words, if I am risen with Christ, that affects every relationship that I have, every single one, inevitably. So Lord willing, next week we'll continue and look at what Paul says concerning husbands, again looking to Ephesians 5 again as well as he expounds upon it further. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you.